Good morning. Good to be with you this morning, church. We have got a tall task ahead of us this morning. We are going to do an overview of the entire book of Genesis, and then we're going to look at the first three chapters of Genesis. It's completely realistic and doable, but let's pray just in case. Lord, thank you so much for uh, your word to us. Lord, thank you that, um, Lord, you don't make yourself a mystery to us, but you do reveal yourself and your plan in the word. And so we thank you so much for that. I pray that you would uh, open our hearts and our minds, that you would open our eyes this morning, uh, to borrow words from Genesis, that you would open our eyes to the beautiful things that you have done in creation that you are doing uh, through Christ and that you will complete one day upon his return. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. Uh, Well, out of curiosity this morning, does anyone own a family quilt? A few people? Okay, great. Uh, Maybe you made it yourself, or maybe it's kind of been carried down uh, through the the generations. For those of you who don't own a quilt, has anyone seen a quilt just ever? (laughs) If if not, this analogy will start to break down really quickly. Um, I I don't know the technical definition of a quilt. Uh, But one big feature that I've seen in most quilts, if not all quilts, is that they kind of have this uh, geometrical pattern to them, right? That kind of runs across the whole surface. And so if you were to lay that quilt down on the floor, or even maybe you put it up on the wall, sometimes people will do that with a quilt uh, and kind of put it on display, and you just stand back from that quilt, you'll see how that whole pattern sort of unfolds. Uh, and, and it makes up this one big, large design. But what's interesting about a quilt is that with most of them, maybe not all of them, but with most of them, if you were to cut out just maybe a one foot by one foot square from that quilt, in just that one small piece, you'll actually have the pattern of the whole quilt represented. Because all that quilt is doing most of the time is repeating the same pattern over and over and over again in order to make up one big tapestry, one large design. And as we dive into the book of Genesis over the next seven weeks, this is going to kind of be our our summer series in June and July, I want us to think of Genesis as though it were part of a quilt. So Genesis has been written to connect to and match up with the narrative that's going to unfold throughout the rest of Scripture. In fact, it'll actually establish the pattern that we're going to see repeat over and over and over again in order to make up one cohesive story, one big design. And that design is going to run all the way from Genesis to Revelation. The reason why I say all that is because I want us to to go into Genesis starting this week with kind of the right mindset and the right expectations as we really look at this book in a deeper way over 
the next several weeks. So we're not going to answer questions like, um, you know, which view of creation is right? Or what is the Bible's take on polygamy? Or what were the geographical boundaries of the promised land? It's not that Genesis can't bring clarity to those questions. It's not that they don't have answers for those questions. But the questions we're going to ask in this series are what pattern is Genesis establishing? And how does that pattern inform and shape our understanding of the rest of the Bible? That, at its core, is really what Genesis is there to do. There's a reason why Genesis is the first book in the Bible. And I hope throughout this series we'll understand more and more what Genesis is doing in order to truly introduce all the rest of the 65 books in the Bible. So the way we'll answer those questions is by studying Genesis at, at a pretty uh, high level. So this series is going to be a, a little bit different than maybe what we uh, typically do uh, on, a, on a Sunday morning, because we're going to be looking at large sections of Scripture each week versus just going verse by verse and, and, and looking chapter by chapter. But my hope is that in doing that and kind of staying at a higher level in Genesis, what you'd be given is this sort of framework that you can take and actually go and read and study Genesis on your own, that you'd be able to better understand it. Maybe not necessarily in a new way, although maybe this series will help you understand Genesis in a new way, but at the very least, it would help you understand Genesis in a fuller way. So my encouragement to you, even though we will not be going through Genesis verse by verse by verse over the next seven weeks, Maybe this would be a good time for you to go through Genesis verse by verse over the next seven weeks to include this in your own personal time in the word throughout this summer. And so before we jump into the opening pages of uh, the whole Bible, by the opening pages of Genesis, I want to give you just a few details about Genesis that uh, I think will really help guide our time in this book. And so the first is structure. How is Genesis structured? Well, the structure of Genesis is actually pretty simple. It's just divided into two sections. So the first section is Genesis 1 through 11. And in those uh, 11 opening chapters, you really have this focus of God's relationship with the world. All right? It's a pretty broad kind of sweeping uh, narrative going on in those first 11 chapters. But when you go into chapter 12, what you see is sort of uh, this, this focusing now that, that's going to take place. And from Genesis 12 all the way to Genesis 50, you're going to see this focus shift now, not just God's relationship on the world, but specifically God's relationship with this one man, Abraham, and then with the rest of his family or his offspring. And so in a few weeks, when we get into chapter 12, we hope to kind of really point out, you know, this, this hinge point that's taking place, this shift in the narrative that's starting to happen. And no longer are we so much kind of just following uh, character to character. We're focusing on one character and what God's going to do moving forward for the rest of time through that one character. So that's the structure of Genesis. It's just two parts. The second thing, though, that I want to uh, kind of share with us this morning about Genesis is the purpose of Genesis, all right? So the, the purpose of Genesis, and we've really already started to hint at this, but the purpose of this book is to establish the redemptive pattern 
that unfolds throughout the remaining pages of Scripture as God rescues and restores his creation from the brokenness of sin. And that's why we've actually entitled this series, The Gospel in the Beginning. By the time that we read the last words in the book of Genesis, we will already have the basic parts of God's plan that he's going to use in order to save the entire world. So it's pretty cool. Uh, as we look at Genesis, we're going to see like there, there is a plan that is being presented to us in a very basic sense, but in a very significant sense, that, that this is the plan that's going to be followed for the rest of Scripture. In other words, if we want to understand the gospel, if we want to understand how God is redeeming the world, why the gospel is necessary, what the gospel is doing then we're going to need to understand Genesis because Genesis is providing us this foundation that the gospel is going to be built on. And I would make the argument actually throughout these seven weeks that if we really truly do not understand Genesis and what it's saying and what it's doing, then we are going to sacrifice a full understanding of the gospel and what the gospel is doing. All right, so... That's the structure. That's the purpose. The, the third kind of uh, resource that I want to give us that will help us understand the book of Genesis is just some main themes that we're going to see throughout the book. So going back to our quilt analogy, I really love this analogy. I think it's great. Um, going back to this quilt analogy, you can think of themes as the threads that sort of weave the whole story together, okay? They're, they're sort of connecting everything so that it makes up uh, one, one big narrative, one big quilt, if you will. All right, so uh, four themes that we're going to go over that tie Genesis together. The first one is Eden, or another phrase for this could actually be the land. All right, so we're going to see Eden actually referenced constantly in Genesis, sometimes explicitly and sometimes implicitly. And the implication is that Eden isn't just something to look back on. Like once Adam and Eve are out of the garden after Genesis 3, it's not just Eden is this thing that happened in the past that, you know, it's lost and that's too bad. But Eden is actually something that is to look forward to, okay? It's what God is going to recreate, what he's going to reestablish through his plan of redemption. So that's the first theme. The second theme uh, that will pop up throughout Genesis is the theme of seed or offspring is another word for this. So we see it first come up actually in the narrative that we're going to look at this morning in Genesis 3.15. God curses the serpent for deceiving Eve. And he says in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring or seed, maybe even your translation this morning says seed, I'll put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now there's, there is a lot that we could say just about this one theme in the book of Genesis. I'm going to try to reserve all that because we'll actually just hit on that theme alone next week. Uh, we're going to kind of trace the lineage of Adam and Eve and see how this seed sort of plays out. But the basic premise here is that there is going to be a division that is made in humanity after sin enters into 
the world. And it's going to be categorized as two seeds. You have the seed of the woman and you have the seed of the serpent. And these two seeds are going to battle it out until the end of time, basically. And so God's blessing will come through the seed of the woman. God's judgment will come on the seed of the serpent. That's the second major theme. The third major theme that uh, will really help us link all of Genesis together is disharmony. Disharmony. So in the first words of Genesis 1, we see the land described as formless and empty. Or maybe your translation says without form and void. But formless and empty is basically the idea. And what God proceeds to do throughout the creation story is actually bring order to disorder. He forms the land and he fills it with plants and creatures and animals. And along the way, he also establishes uh, a formal order of operations. So he, he kind of explains who is in charge of who. But what sin is going to do is take that order that God has established and it's going to return it to disorder. It's going to return things to kind of this chaotic period where there was no form, there was emptiness. And so over and over again, as people fall in sin throughout this book, their disobedience is going to be marked by disharmony and disunity. That's going to be kind of a key to clue you in on, are these people in the right or not? Well, start looking at their lives. Are their lives disordered? Is there disunity represented in their relationships? And if so, it probably means they're not doing something right, right? It's going to clue us into that. So they're going to experience this disunity, their relationships with God, their relationships with one another, their relationships with creation itself is going to be disordered. Ordered, and God will need to sovereignly intervene in order to bring things back into order. And that brings me to the last main theme that we'll see throughout Genesis, which is God as rescuer. So we'll, we'll come across lots of different characters throughout this book. Some are going to be better. Some are going to be worse. But all of them are going to have one thing in common. They're all going to fall in some way. None of them are going to be able to fix what's been broken. None of them are going to be able to perfectly live out those days in Eden before sin entered into the world. And what's going to rise to the surface in all of these failures, is this reality that God is still in control. God is not going to let sin have the final word. He is going to rescue his creation from total collapse. And he's even going to use all those broken people, all those people that keep falling and failing and sinning. He's going to use all of them in the process so that we can look back and know beyond a shadow of a doubt, there is no question who is really behind the salvation of humanity. It was not all these broken people. All they keep doing is messing up. And yet God is going to work and intervene and rescue humanity from itself. 
And so with that in mind, we're going to look now at, at the first three chapters of the Bible, Genesis uh, 1 through 3. And what's so interesting about these chapters is that not only do they present the problem that's going to uh, sort of become central in the Bible story, but we actually see that they present the solution to that problem as well. So in other words, in just the first three chapters of Genesis, we already know how the whole story of the Bible begins and ends. So it's a little bit of a spoiler in that way. Um, But it does this by establishing this four-part pattern that's going to be picked up and retold over and over and over again throughout Scripture until the very last pages. And so with the rest of our time this morning, I want us to just look at those four big parts or or movements being established in Genesis 1 through 3 And even see how that pattern reveals God's plan to redeem his people and restore his creation. So the first piece, or the first movement in this redemptive pattern is blessing. That's a key theme that actually runs throughout scripture. But we see it for the first time in Genesis 1. We see it in two different places actually. So in verse 22... God blesses uh, animals, specifically it's the sea creatures and the birds. And then in verse 28, God blesses humans. But in both cases, the result of God's blessing is reproduction. There's this phrase to uh, go out and be fruitful and multiply. And so going back to actually one of our main themes that we've already brought up, uh, this theme of seed, there is already a formal connection that's happening here that's being established where God's blessing is going to come through offspring. God's blessing is going to come through seed. The way God pours out his blessing on his creation is through providing a lineage. It's through providing a seed. That's going to be uh, an important uh, theme or concept to remember if we want to understand this redemptive pattern that's being established in Genesis and the Bible. But even though animals and humans receive really the same blessing on the surface, is this blessing to be fruitful and to multiply, humans we see in verse 28 are now given a unique blessing that's added onto this uh, general blessing. It's the blessing of dominion or authority. They are to rule over the rest of creation and act as God's representatives by mirroring his image and by displaying his authority over everything. In fact, what God says in verses 29 and 30 implies that what he's created has actually been made in order to actually bless the humans. So everything that's been created, it's been created to serve humanity and to serve their purposes in the garden. One commentary that I actually was reading this past week even said that the acts of creation that God calls good, right? This is sort of a a pattern that, that comes up through the days of creation that God looks back frequently and says, and it was good, right? He saw that it was good. But uh, this commentary that I was reading said that what God calls good, the days that God calls good are only the ones that will directly benefit and further humanity, 
In other words, what, what makes things good in the eyes of God is the degree to which it will assist or be to good use to human beings. And the reason why that's significant is because it means that in Genesis 1, not only do we see the works of God starting to unfold, but we also see the heart of God as well. He's literally created the ideal universe in Genesis 1 and 2. He has taken what was formless and empty. He's formed it. He's filled it. Uh, he's separated the land from the water, uh, the sky from the sea. He's covered it with plants and creatures. And in this ideal universe where God has orchestrated everything to function exactly how he wants it, he says to humans, my desire in its purest sense, in the most ideal way, my desire is to bless you and to provide for you. It's to give you authority in the land by placing my image on you. That is the natural posture, the ideal posture of God towards humanity. And so there's this theological reality that's being presented to us throughout Genesis 1 about God's unique love for humans. God's desire, God's purest intentions, his ideal scenario is that his role in relation to humanity would be one of blessing and provision. But unfortunately, we're going to see things take a turn in the coming pages, and that leads us to the second part of this redemptive plan in Genesis, which is rebellion. So we have God's blessing. And then if you know the story of Genesis, you won't be surprised by this. We have rebellion against that blessing. So in this good land that God has provided, he really only gives one rule in Genesis 2, 16 through 17, which is just to kind of summarize it. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of it, you'll die. That's the abridged version. It's a very simple, straightforward rule in terms of here's how to live and succeed in this garden that I've made for you. But based on how the narrative is presented, it doesn't really take very much time before that rule is already broken, before it's challenged, before it's undermined. So just 13 verses later, right? It's not, I mean, it's not even a full chapter. 13 verses later, Eve is going to be deceived by the serpent and she's going to eat that fruit. But notice... Why, according to the narrative, why Eve eats that fruit? So in Genesis 3, 6, it says that Eve saw that the tree was good. That's what leads her to decide, maybe I should eat this fruit. She saw that the tree was good. Now, what's interesting about that is up until this moment, it's only been God who's seen what was good in creation. And again, he's determined that it's good precisely because it will cause human flourishing. It won't inhibit it. It will cause it. And so by Eve's looking at the tree and determining that it's good, what she's ultimately doing is rebelling not just against God's authority, but she's rebelling against God's wisdom. And in fact, also in the narrative, we see that Eve doesn't just look at the tree and say that it's good, but it says she's determined that it will give her 
wisdom. It will give her insight. So God has already established what's good in creation. He's already provided what's good for humanity. All they have to do is just trust and obey him. And so to define something as good that God hasn't defined as good is essentially to doubt in the provision of God. It's to determine that God's plan and God's provisions aren't the best means to giving personal fulfillment and flourishing. That is what sin is at its core, according to the book of Genesis. Sin is more than just doing bad things. At its core, sin is determining what is good in our own eyes because we do not trust the boundaries and the blessings God has already put in place. We don't trust his methods or his timing or his wisdom. And so we determine what the best pathway is to get what we want. We pursue things like sexual freedom and liberation because we don't trust that God's definition of sexuality and the boundaries that he has put up are actually for our good and for our flourishing and for our enjoyment. We make all kinds of foolish compromises when it comes to trying to chase success and wealth because we don't believe that God is our provider and that he will give us what we need when we need it. You can go down the list of any sin you can think of, any sin that you've struggled with in the past or that you're struggling with now. And if you're honest with yourself, you will realize that sin is not just an obedience issue. Sin is a trust issue. And the ironic conclusion here, the result of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God and his order is that in seeking to gain wisdom, they actually proved themselves to be fools. And trying to be like God and to know good and evil, what actually ends up happening is that they lose the good and all they do is gain the evil. And that takes us to the third part of this redemptive pattern that we see in Genesis, which is separation. So we have God's blessing. He blesses humanity. He blesses his creation. We rebel against that blessing and that good order that he has established. And the consequence of that is now separation. And in the, the narrative of Genesis, specifically Genesis 3, we see that separation now played out on basically three different stages. We see it have three different kinds of effects. So the first kind of separation that comes as a result of Adam and Eve's rebellion is first, separation from one another. So this shows itself in a few ways. The, the first being the fact that in verse 7 of Genesis 3, they make coverings for themselves out of fig leaves because they're embarrassed to be naked in front of each other, right? But not only is there the shame that's sort of alienating humans from one another, we also see this sort of blame shifting start to happen. So once God starts actually questioning Adam and Eve and asking, you know, why, why did you take of the fruit that I told you not to take of? Adam actually tries to shift the blame to Eve in verse 12 by saying, well, it was really Eve that made me take the fruit. And so it's like this wedge is being driven deeper and deeper between Adam and Eve the further that you read Genesis chapter 3. 
And to top it all off, to top off this separation that's, that's really starting to develop insanely fast, right, between human beings, to top it all off, God's verdict against Eve in verse 16 is that the human relationships of marriage and parenting, these relationships that were supposed to be a blessing, right, to be fruitful and to multiply, these relationships, which were to be a blessing, are now going to be a burden, There will be pain in bearing children. There will be disharmony in her relationship with her husband. So this rebellion separates humans from humans, first of all, but then it also separates humans from creation. So as God issues his judgment on Adam in verses 17 through 19, what we see is essentially a point-by-point reversal of the intended creation order that's been established in the first two chapters of Genesis. So the woman that was given to Adam, she's described as a helper. But now, now that they've rebelled, what's actually going to happen is apparently he's going to start seeing Eve and misunderstanding Eve as a burden to him. The ground that was meant to produce good food for human flourishing. Now God says that ground is cursed. And that cursed ground is only going to produce food for you, Adam, after you labor for it, painfully. I mean, it's going to take sweat and work and toil before that ground produces anything for you. And even Adam himself is going to see his very own existence be reversed because he's going to return to being dust rather than being formed from the dust. And so we see this separation taking place. There's a separation Humans to humans, there's a separation of humans from creation. But then the final kind of separation, the most significant kind of separation, is uh, that this rebellion causes separation between humanity and God. There's a separation between humans and their creator. So before the fall, God took the role of provider with Adam, but now we'll see him actually take the role of judge. So instead of issuing just blessings upon humans, now God is going to issue burdens and consequences. They're going to inherit some of these curses that God has issued on creation. In fact, the greatest blessing that humanity had, which was living in the garden and being surrounded by God's presence and God's provision, is no longer something that Adam and Eve get to enjoy. In other words, on every single level, Adam and Eve's rebellion is reversing all the good things that came out of Genesis 1 and 2. That is what sin does. Sin does not make bad things. Sin makes things bad. It takes what God has already created, what he's already put into order, and it disorders it. It reverses it. It manipulates and corrupts what was good and it repurposes it for evil. And so the question that this text is begging us to ask at this point is what is God going to do? Everything that God has put into order, humanity has rebelled against and they've caused it to return to disorder to disharmony, to disunity. 
So how will God respond in order to stop the sort of downward spiral that's being initiated by humanity's sin? And the answer is in verse 21 of Genesis chapter 3. God provides clothes out of animal skin in order to cover the shame that's been caused by their sin. That's the last piece of this redemptive pattern that we see throughout Genesis and that we see throughout the Bible. God blesses his people. They rebel against God's good blessing. They're separated. They experience disharmony. But God provides a covering for sin in order to restore his good creation. And this pattern of blessing and rebellion and separation and provision, that pattern is going to be played out over and over and over again throughout Genesis and throughout all of Scripture. And it's going to culminate in God sending his own son in order to cover the sins of the world. God's blessing humanity will ultimately be displayed by him providing Christ who will be tempted in every way by the serpent, but he will not fall. Who will take all things that have been separated by sin and he will reunite them to himself. And the way Christ is going to accomplish this is through being the sacrifice for sin. That is what Genesis 3.21 is hinting at when it says that God clothed Adam and Eve with skins, right? Where, where are those skins coming from? What the narrative is implying here is that a sacrifice had to be made by God in order to cover the shame and the sin of Adam and Eve. There is a sacrifice that was necessary. And that's how the story is going to end. Just like God provided for his creation in the garden, God is going to now provide an avenue of redemption through Christ. And through Christ, that garden is going to be recreated. The pattern of this redemption, of blessing, of rebellion, of separation, of provision, is already being established for us in the first three chapters of the Bible. And so the question is no longer, what will God do? We know how the story begins and we know how the story ends, right? We know what God is going to do by the time we finish Genesis chapter three. The question now is, how will God bring these things about? How will he ultimately provide for this disorder that sin has brought to creation? That's the question that we're going to seek to answer in the coming weeks as we go through the rest of the chapters of Genesis. And I hope you'll join us as we do. But until then, let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you so much that even though it was, it was completely within your right to completely remove, to wipe out creation that had been tarnished by sin and brokenness, Lord, you have chosen in your grace to use humanity rather than destroy humanity in order to reestablish your good order in creation, to recreate 
what you originally designed and called good in the garden. And so, Lord, I pray that we would truly consider what it means to be a part of that recreation. What does it mean for our sins to be covered through your provision and to now be citizens of this this perfect world that you're reestablishing, this kingdom that you are rebuilding and recreating in the world, the new heavens and the new earth that you have intended to establish. Lord, would we be part of that process? Would we be be a a part of that lineage and that seed, not the, the seed of the serpent? Lord, it's in your son's name that I pray. Amen.